and welcome. What a blessing it is to gather today on, on the Lord's Day and to worship together. We want to welcome our guests and our visitors as well. It's, uh, it's a blessing to us that you're with us, and we pray that God would bless you among us, that we might all not only be blessed, but give God the glory that He deserves. Let's begin our time together by joining our hearts in a moment of silent prayer, and then we'll conclude by praying together. Let's pray. Father, you have gathered us here this day, and we thank you. You know the hearts of each one. You know our lives, our struggles, our joys, our sorrows, and our triumphs. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one, that we might be focused upon you, that we might be built up by your word, and that our hearts might overflow with praise that is pleasing to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him. We're going to sing from uh, Psalm 97, Selection B in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. And we're going to sing stanzas 1 and 2, then 5, 6, and 7. 1 and 2, 5, 6, and 7 of 97B.
having gathered His people to Himself, God speaks to us the words of His law, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, And rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You hear that law, and it humbles us. It should humble us. As we recognize that whether by what we've done or by what we've omitted doing, by what we've actively taken hold of or by that which we have inwardly desired, we have broken God's law. We have failed to uphold His righteous standard and therefore His judgment is due to us. Accept. Accept what He says right at the very beginning that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from your slavery. Just as truly as He delivered Israel from their land of physical slavery, so He has delivered all who are in Christ out from their spiritual slavery to sin. And He has covered over the sin, the the guilt, the defilement that our sins had earned through the righteousness and the holiness and the satisfaction of Christ on our behalf. And therefore, we can approach Him without fear, but with joy, if we are trusting in Christ. So let us confess that our trust, that our hope is in Him, as we sing together a rendering of a portion of Psalm 115, which you can find in selection 227 from your Psalter hymnal. Number 227, we'll sing all four stanzas.
The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This is our confidence and this is our calling As those who have been restored to God through Christ, we now are called to live as those who are holy in Christ, as those who are no longer bound to our slavery to sin, as those who reflect the living image of the God who has saved us. And we recognize that we can't and we won't apart from the work of His Spirit, and He gives the power of His Spirit to those who ask for it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to seek the Lord in a moment of prayer in addition to seeking our sanctification. um, We need to pray for one another. Um, We've been praying for some time for Sherry Mingerink um, with her her eye. She's got swelling behind the retina. Um, There has been some slight improvement, so praise the Lord for that. Continue to pray for for Sherry, who's also uh, under the weather today. Um, Dan Van Enns uh, has another radiation treatment this coming week, uh, so please pray for him. Um, There is a March for Life in Lansing. We need to pray that uh, those who are able to attend will bear witness to our lawmakers whom God has raised up, who are called to be His servants, Pray that God's people, when they go and, and call on them to serve God in their lawmaking, that they will hear and that their consciences will be affected by that, especially as they are contemplating a series of bills that would take all the restraints off of abortion. Wicked, absolutely wicked. I mean, to the point where they don't even want there to be health regulations for the clinics that end the lives of babies. It's just, it's insane. Uh, No, it's not insane. It's rebellion. So pray that God would afflict the consciences of our lawmakers and let them see that they are accountable to Him. Um, And then on a much happier note, continue to be in prayer for uh, those who are preparing for marriage, uh, especially Emily and Matthew as they prepare for, uh, for that Saturday. So let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is 
to know you as our Heavenly Father. When we hear your law, when we open our eyes to the weightiness of your commands, Father, we tremble because we know our weakness. We know the attractiveness of sin and our own inability to stand before that temptation. But then we remember that you are infinitely greater than we are. That already you sent your Son to cover over the defilement of our sin and to pay the penalty on our behalf. And that you have promised that His righteousness and holiness are imputed to all who trust in Him. Father, thank You for giving us that trust, that faith. And we pray that now You would fill us with the work of Your Spirit so that more and more, day by day, we might learn to love You with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, and to love our neighbor made in Your image, even as we love ourselves. Lord, we pray that You would each day Awaken in us the desire to put off our old sins and the desire to serve you wholeheartedly, taking up a lifestyle of holiness and purity and goodness, not for our glory, but to please you and to show you our thanks. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us today for worship that we have the privilege of gathering amongst the saints in the presence of the angels to bring you the worship that you and you alone deserve. May it be refreshing to us. And may you delight in your people who lift high your praises. Father, we thank you for the multitude of blessings that you've poured out upon us. For children who fill our pews, for parents and grandparents who know and love you and confess you to their young ones, for the blessing of little ones in the womb whom we are eager to meet, for the blessing of marriage and the living witness that a godly marriage is to the love of Christ and the devotion of the church. Father, we pray for Emily and Matthew as they prepare for taking their vows this coming week. We pray that you would bless them in that and that you would glorify yourself through them. And likewise for others in our midst who are preparing for marriage, Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts and in their lives, preparing them for their life together in you. And we pray, Father, for the many other needs of this congregation. Father, we thank you that you have been hearing our prayer for Sherry. We pray that you would continue to reduce the swelling in her eye and to restore, um, to restore that vision, to restore her strength. Father, we pray for uh, Brother Dan as he uh, undergoes radiation treatment this week. Bless him with patience and healing and strength. Likewise for Kathy as well. Father, we pray for continued healing for Dale with his as he recovers from shoulder replacement surgery. We ask that you would strengthen him. We we pray for others in our midst undergoing treatment for various ailments and diseases and cancer. For those many who are struggling with uh, illnesses of the season, 
We pray for each one that you would provide the healing and the strength they need. Likewise, for those whose struggle is harder to pinpoint, for those wrestling with doubts and fears and unbelief, for those who feel caught in their sin and their temptations, also for those, Lord, who are uh, facing persecution and others, Lord, who are dealing with trials in their relationships. Father, only you are able to provide what we stand in need of, but we know that you are abundantly able. And we pray that you would work powerfully in the hearts and in the lives of those who confess you. We pray for our family members beyond this congregation, for Aaron's mother, Robin, as she recovers from some illness, for Marvin Sherry's brother-in-law, Jim, as he deals with the effects of cancer, for Beth's mother, Cheryl, as she experiences the deterioration of her health and the approach of death for many others, Lord. You know the needs. You know the, the cares, the burdens that weigh upon our hearts. We lay them all before you, including the many that are unnamed. And we confess that you and you alone are able to provide precisely what each one needs. Father, we pray for our state as more and more the state of Michigan reveals itself a battleground between holiness and hatred of God. Lord, we pray in particular this week for those who will gather in Lansing to call on our lawmakers and our governor to uphold life and the gift of life that you give. And to remember that they are servants as the magistrate who are raised up by you and endowed with the sword and with authority to uphold what is just and right and to punish what is wicked and evil. And yet, so many of them have been doing the opposite, seeking to advance the cause of death and to enable the murder of children even in the womb. Father, we pray that you would prick the hearts and afflict the consciences of our lawmakers and our governor, reminding them that they will stand before you as the true judge of all mankind. And have have them, Lord, turn their course away from a hatred of life, away from an advance of evil and toward a holy and righteous cause. And not just in this, but Lord, we pray that that you would work in their hearts to cause them to protect and to preserve what is good and righteous according to your word in every area of life while acknowledging and punishing what is evil. And if they will not, Lord, we pray that you will remove them and put in their place those who acknowledge you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. More than that, Lord, we pray that you would raise up your church in this state. That where the church has languished 
being content to soothe hearts that ought to be afflicted and to speak easy words of comfort that do not challenge. We pray, Lord, that you would cause your servants to rise up and speak the truth of your word, which at one and the same time awakens us to the misery of our sin and the the desperate condition of those who remain in sin while pointing us to the one true remedy for sin, which is Christ. And cause the word to be proclaimed with faithfulness and boldness in all of life, so that your people might recognize that having been delivered by grace, we now are called to be holy in all our lives as a grateful response, acknowledging the holiness and the goodness of our God. Lord, renew and reinvigorate your church. That your people, overwhelmed by the conviction of your word, filled with the power of your spirit, might see their lives transformed, might see their hearts encouraged, and might speak the word that brings life to their neighbors, their co-workers, their family, their friends. And Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit forth with great power to work in the hearts of those who do not yet believe that they might be prepared to see and to hear and to understand from your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring in your elect according to your good purposes and plans. And, Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would allow your word here to be faithfully proclaimed, that you would enable your people to be shepherded and to receive that shepherding, not just from the elders, but from one another that more and more we might be molded and shaped after your very image. Grant that all that we do this day, Lord, might be devoted unto you, that you would receive the glory and that we would be refreshed and strengthened for the work that you have set before us. Forgive us of our sins, we pray, Lord, and use us as servants to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look to God's Word, let's stand and sing. We're going to sing selection 299 in our Blue Psalter hymnal. 299, we'll sing the first four stanzas and then the final, stanza eight.
Our scripture reading is from Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Last time we saw how God called on His people to live as His priestly people. People uniquely set apart and devoted unto Him. That was true of old Israel, that is true of the new Israel, which is the church. And now we're going to see the implications of that, especially as we draw near to the Lord. Now this is the last text we're going to read from Exodus uh, for a while. Um, we're going to transition to a different um, series starting next week, looking at um, some of the women in the line of Christ as we come toward Christmas um, but, uh, and toward the end of the year. But then, Lord willing, we'll return to a selection of texts from Exodus after that. But um, Look with me at verse 9 of Exodus 19. That's where we're going to start reading. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether, man, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the, third, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to, to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down. And come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. And we read earlier the Ten Commandments. And then following that, we read, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of our holy God, last week we saw how God taught his people of old to embrace a new identity. They were to see themselves as a people delivered by God, revealing their faith by means of their obedience, living in the joy of the promises God had spoken to them. Israel was to be a priestly people, completely and uniquely devoted to God. Now here's the thing, all men inherently are religious. We were created for worship. We were made to serve God, singing His praises, acknowledging His truth, confessing Him before the world. But sin corrupted the heart of man. Rather than submitting to God, they insist on being in charge. Rather than doing what He commands, they want to invent a worship according to their ideals. Rather than the true God, they worship false gods made after their image. And so Israel, God said, must be different They belong to the true God. They've been delivered by the true God. They therefore must worship the true God in a way that shows that they are completely different. They're not trying to sit on the throne. They're not trying to reinvent God. They're trying to honor the true God as man was created to do. And so in order to do that, they must learn who God is. They must learn what God is like. And that's what God's doing in this encounter we just read about in Exodus 19 and 20. They have drawn near to the mountain where God will cause them to remain for about a year. There they will learn all about God. They will learn all about their calling as a priestly people, how they are to live before Him. They've heard the Ten Commandments, the moral law, that stands at the heart of how they're to live before God. But now they're going to hear a whole bunch of case laws as God applies that moral law to the life, to the time and the place of Israel. Not just out in the wilderness, but as they come into the promised land. But the first thing they must hear is an application of the first commandment. You shall not have any other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not make any idols. So that they might learn how to relate to God. And in order to do that, they have to understand who He is, what He is like, why they should fear Him. And so that's what we see here, is the Lord teaching His priestly people to worship with reverent awe. 
the Lord teaches his priestly people to worship with reverent awe. And that theme is crucial for us because we are Israel today. We are the priestly people who have followed. Every one of us who has faith in Christ, we are descendants of Abraham. We are the fulfillment of Israel. And therefore, we are called to worship with reverent awe. And the first lesson that God teaches His people in this text from Exodus 20 in particular is that we must recognize God's unapproachable holiness. Notice how in chapter 19 He calls the people to consecrate themselves. They're to wash their clothes. They're to wash their bodies. They're to stay away from anything that would render them impure in God's sight. Meanwhile, Moses is to set up barriers around the mountain. So that no one can draw near, not man or woman, not animal of any sort. Anyone who dares to approach God is to be killed. What's the purpose of all that? It's to show them that God is not common. Just as you would not enter the presence of someone of great import, someone of great influence in your dirty, ragged work clothes, smelling like you've just been working a 10-hour shift in the heat. No, you would wash, you would cleanse yourself, you would put on good clothes, you would approach carefully, being sure to uphold all of the proper conventions. Well, if you would do that with an important person, how much more the living God who is holy and perfect and pure. Israel, even as they drew near to God, has to recognize He is different than anyone else you might approach. You don't just, just take a quick minute to dash through the bath. Two days. To make sure that you have cleansed yourself and separated yourself from anything impure. Brothers and sisters, this isn't the main point of this text, but, but maybe we should think about that on Saturday as we're preparing to come to worship. Maybe we should think about that as we think about getting to bed early. Doing all the chores we can on Saturday so that we're not distracted by them on Sunday. Setting out our clothes that are different clothes, clothes that we wouldn't wear before just any person or out to our work day. Recognizing, consecrating ourselves to recognize that our God is unique, that our God is holy and deserves our absolute attention, our absolute devotion. Well, that's what Israel did. They took those two days to wash, to cleanse themselves, to prepare they set up barriers around the mountain lest anyone draw near to God unworthily. But then on that third day as it dawned, Mount Sinai was transformed. Now ordinarily, this mountain, it, it's, it's, this isn't Everest, right? It's not a mountain that spans many, many, many miles. This is a big chunk of rock out in the wilderness. It has a discernible edge to it. But on that day, the mountain is absolutely covered with thick, dark clouds, lightning, 
flashes in the midst of the darkness as the air vibrates with fierce thunder. And then suddenly, as the people are standing there gazing at this wonder, suddenly the sound of a trumpet pierces the darkness. And a sound that grows loud, that begins loud grows louder and louder and louder. As God announces that He is present before them on the mountain. Moses recounts, In verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Their senses were absolutely overwhelmed. Rather than rushing the fence that surrounded the mountain, they backed away in fear, literally shaking in terror. In verse 19, they confess that if God continued to speak to them, they expected they would die. It's hard for us to comprehend the fear that they experienced there. Because this is something that mankind in this world generally doesn't experience. The closest we might come is if you've ever hunkered down in a basement or in the most secure room you can find as the storm raged around you and you wondered whether the tornado would hit you. Or if you've ever lived in a southern climate and had to hunker down wondering why you didn't evacuate as the hurricane drew near. It's that fear, it's that worry, will I be utterly annihilated? And that was not an irrational response. Hebrews 12.21 tells us that even Moses trembled in fear as the presence of God engulfed the mountain. In fact, we find the same response whenever people encounter the presence of the living God. In Daniel chapter 10, the exiled prophet encounters a living manifestation of God. And the first thing that we're told is that all his friends disappeared. They were terrified and they ran away. And then Daniel himself says, in, this is in Daniel 10, No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Or consider the Apostle John. Being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he encountered a living manifestation, a physical manifestation of Christ. And he reports in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Why such a fear-filled response whenever God's people encounter God? Well, it's because the greatness of his might and his holiness fills them with awe, not only at his greatness, but at their worthiness of his wrath. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6. In a vision, he's transported into the throne room of God. And what's he cry out? Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah experienced what all of Israel experienced, seeing the greatness and the might and the holiness of God. They recognized that they were unholy, that they were imperfect, that they were impure, that they were not only worthy of God's wrath, at their sin 
but that he was obligated to utterly annihilate them because they had so defiled themselves with rebellion. Folks, that is the recognition we all must gain as we encounter the living God. And we do encounter him, certainly not at a mountain that is covered with clouds and light, lightning and thunder and a, a trumpet sound. No, not, not in that visceral way. But every time we gather here and we hear the word of God calling us to worship, we encounter God. Commanding us from heaven, as it were, to gather in holiness before him. Every time we hear that law read, we hear the moral standard of our God by which He will judge all of mankind. Every time we hear the gospel proclaimed, we hear the mercy of God pronouncing forgiveness of our sins and reception of the children whom He has adopted. We do encounter God here among His people in the living temple. We encounter God in the midst of men who have defiled themselves with sin but who have been cleansed purified and indwelt by the Spirit Himself. And when we encounter Him, brothers and sisters, we must not do so lightly. Because the one who calls us, the one whose law would condemn us, the one whose gospel frees us, the one who dwells in our midst is the same one who covered that mountain. He is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is sovereign. He is good. And He deserves our worship, our praise, our awe. Had God not revealed His majestic presence to Israel, they would have destroyed themselves. They would have approached Him thoughtlessly. And they would have been worthy of absolute annihilation. Do we approach him thoughtlessly? Do we approach lightly the creator of heaven and earth who upholds us at every moment before whom all men one day will stand in judgment? The one who spoke and the sea was separated. The one who breaks mountains in pieces. The one who will cleanse this entire creation with flame. When we approach Him, do we do so recognizing the greatness of His holiness and His might? We must. We must recognize the unapproachable holiness of God. The one who is a consuming fire. But we must not stop there. When Israel recognized the unapproachable holiness of God, what did they do? They immediately sought a holy mediator. That's the second thing we see. We see it particularly in verses 19 and 21. Even as they trembled in terror, Israel called out to Moses. And they said, you speak to us and we will listen. The way that's written, it's an exclusive statement. You alone speak to us. We're happy to hear you, Moses. But, they say, do not let God speak to us lest we die. They understood now. God is holy. They remain defiled. Despite two days of consecration, despite washing, despite separating from sin as well as they could, they are not yet worthy to enter God's presence. So you speak to us. You serve as our mediator, as our go-between. You go to God. You 
bring all the needs of God's people to him and you come back and you tell us what he said, we'll be happy to hear. That is precisely the right response. Because this response reveals that they understood God is holy and perfect and pure and He will not tolerate anything that is less than holy and perfect and pure. His holiness will consume them, will destroy them. They got it. They understood about God and they understood about themselves that they were not yet holy. This was a breakthrough, this plea for a mediator. It showed that they recognized how holy God was. They recognized the depth and the breadth of their need. And they sought someone to come between them and God. This request they made of Moses was the proper response. And we know that because of what Moses told them 40 years later. In Deuteronomy 5, he recounted how they said, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Moses recounts how they said that to him. And he says, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. God was pleased because he saw that his people recognized his holiness, his greatness, and their need for help. So Moses would fulfill that will, that, that role. He would go up to the mountain and take all the requests of God's people to God. He would hear from God his commands and his instructions for the people and he would go back down and he would instruct them on God's behalf, his very face flaming with the glory of God that he had encountered. And in that we see a living image of Christ. Jesus, after all, was the true mediator, is the true mediator. Like Moses, he's one of us, a man who has experienced all that life in this world involves. And yet, unlike us and unlike Moses, he's the perfect man, never sinned, never gave in to temptation, never rebelled against God, not even once. He suffered and died to pay for our sin and to open a pathway into heaven for us. And he sits at heaven, our mediator, sits at the right hand of God, bringing all our needs before God in prayer and speaking to us on God's behalf. Today, He speaks to us on God's behalf. He does so through the Word. Each one of these 66 books was inspired by the the Spirit to speak the words of Christ. Every time we read this word, it is the word of Christ that we hear. And he speaks to us by the men whom he raises up as ministers and elders called to bring God's word to his people. That's why Paul, when he spoke to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, commended them that when they received the word that he preached to them, they received it, he said, not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God. And when we gather here to hear that word, And to respond 
Hebrews 12, we heard in our call to worship, says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose word is perfect and whose works are perfecting our very souls. Brothers and sisters, we need that mediator just as much as Israel did. Look around you, look in the mirror. Like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips and we live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Though we stand aghast at some of the sins that our culture is embracing, we live in the midst of that culture and we have been defiled by it. We have embraced far too many of their attitudes and ideals. We, of ourselves, are not worthy to enter into the presence of God. And so Jesus entered on our behalf. But He didn't stop there, did He? Because by faith He also cleanses us, removes our defilement. And He imputes to us His holiness, His righteousness, so that when we approach God, so that when we draw near to the mountain, we do so as those invited, we do so as those cleansed, we do so as those on whom God looks and sees the absolute perfection and holiness of Christ Himself. And through His work, we are being actually transformed day by day. That Word works with power to change us, to make us new, so that day by day we are becoming what we are. In Christ we are holy, and day by day He's making us holy. In Christ we are righteous, and day by day He's casting off our sins and making us righteous. We're not there yet. But He promises us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that He is the one doing the work, and He will complete it on the day of Christ. It is because of the mediator whom God sent us that we are being renewed and that we have access to God and that we need not live in terror. Well, having heard Israel's confession, God immediately begins to use their mediator. Starting in verse 22 of Exodus 20, the Lord begins setting forth those case laws. I I explained those are applications of the moral law to the life and the situation of Israel. So when we look at those case laws that we find throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we look for the principle of how God's applying the moral law to His people back then, and we ask how can those principles be applied in our situation today? And the first case law He sets before them has to do with worship. That is our first and foremost calling. There is nothing more important. Young people, it is essential we remember that. We live in the midst of many an unbeliever who is defined by their work, by their career, by their earning capacity, by their accomplishments. They cannot understand why you would take one day out of the week, one whole day, and refuse to work. But they can't understand because they don't see that the highest purpose you have, the height of that which glorifies you is what you're doing right now, worshiping God. The time when you are not in the forefront, but when you are part of the communion, when you are part of the congregation, when you are part of the assembly that together gathers to worship and glorify God, putting the spotlight on Him. That's the first law because that's the first priority. 
The Lord reminds them again of what they've seen. You've seen for yourselves. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Therefore, he says, verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor make for yourselves gods of gold. They didn't see a form of God. They saw the greatness of his might and his glory. He says, therefore, you may not make out of your own imagination images of silver and gold to be with me. God will not countenance, he will not accept competition, a second God, a third God, a fourth God to stand beside him, nor, nor an instrument for yourselves by which you can manipulate God. That's what idols are. They're means by which men seek to manipulate God, to obligate him to act in some way. He says, you may not do it. You may not make an image that would distract you from the truth of the living God. Instead, you must worship at an altar. An altar is a place where something dies. By the way, that's why we don't have an altar, do we? Because the sacrifice was offered for us on the cross in Christ. There is no further sacrifice of flesh and blood but now only the sacrifice of consecrated lives. So it's essential that we see how Israel was called to worship at an altar because the only way they could approach God was through a mediator who himself would serve as the sacrifice. That altar is an image of Christ, but it's a unique image. He specifies, you make the altar of earth. You can't make a fancy altar of dirt. It just doesn't work. And that's good because it must glorify God, not the artistry of man. Moreover, it's perishable. An altar of dirt will very soon be broken down by the elements and will not remain to snare them as an idol. Or, he says, if you make an altar of stone, it's fine. Don't wield any tools on it. Don't cut it. Don't shape it because then it becomes something that glorifies you. It becomes a work of man's artistry and he doesn't want that. God is to be worshipped. God is to be glorified and he alone in your worship. Nor may there be steps going up it that the priest might ascend because then what happens? Then the priest becomes the point. The priest becomes the one on display and that's not okay. God must be on display. And on that altar, it is Christ. It is Christ who stands before them. But we learn something there, don't we? We're always tempted to put man on display. Think about the whole church growth movement. What can we do to impress people, to draw people in, to satisfy people? What kind of lights and flashy sounds? What kind of video clips? It's not about us. It mustn't be about us. It mustn't put us on display. That's why we don't use a bunch of pageantry. We don't use a bunch of artwork. No, because that would distract and put the focus on men when the focus needs to be on God, on His Word, on His sacrifice, on His holiness. 
If we are to worship God aright, then we must focus on Him. And if we do this, He says, I will cause my name to be remembered and I will come to you and bless you. When we gather to worship God with the focus on Him, through the power of our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, and His sacrifice, when we refuse to focus on us, when we refuse to highlight ourselves, but we look always to Christ, then He says, I will come to you and I will bless you. That's His promise. That's His assurance. And that, brothers and sisters, is our comfort. May we worship God with the reverent awe that He deserves. And may we be blessed through it by His strength. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You deserve all the glory and all the praise. The fact that we can gather in Your presence without being utterly destroyed we can attribute only and entirely to your grace in Christ. Thank you for revealing that to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts to enable us to see the significance of approaching the Holy God. Enable us to approach you, Lord, in a recognition that you are indeed holy that you are indeed just and that you are the merciful one who sent your Son to save us. May you receive all the glory you deserve through this your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, in response to this text, we can do no other than to seek to glorify God in song. So let's stand and sing together number 229 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 229, we'll sing all the stanzas.
Let us pray. Father, as we bring our worship of tithes and offerings, we pray that you would receive them as a token of our thanks, and that you would cause them to be used in a manner that multiplies your glory and demonstrates your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 52 in our Psalter hymnals, a rendering of Psalm 30. We'll sing all the stanzas of 52.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.